I had the, the pleasure to be in Europe. I was born in France, and I returned to Paris after many years. And there I was in a beautiful hotel in Paris near the Eiffel Tower. And when I arrived there, there was a, the president of the Full Gospel in Paris. He said to me, I said to him, you know who's going to be the speaker today? I just arrived with my wife. And we didn't know what was going on there. I never been to a to a French full gospel, and I was there was 300 people there, and it was a beautiful place, and they were singing gospel music just like here. It was they had the they had the the exact uh, they had a uh, this is the day in French, and they had uh, all those American songs, Jesus uh, is Lord in in French. It was really beautiful, and I felt at home. You know, I felt very comfortable. And the next thing, when I say, who's the speaker today? He say, you know who the speaker is? I says, no. He say, you are the speaker today. <laughs> and, and, and I say, he said, the evangelist that was supposed to speak, uh, is sick, is in the hospital. And you are, I said, well, I, I forgot my French. He said, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit will, will bring it back to you. And here I was speaking for an hour, and we had tremendous, uh, miracle. We see, we saw great miracle there. And not only that, we, we travel, uh, by some kind of coincidence that like the Lord can do. The next night, I was in a different full gospel outside Paris, and every night I went to a different full gospel speaking. And it was like the Lord has organized this. You know, I, I praise the Lord for that. But I was speaking mostly, he said, speak about America. The French want to know what is happening in America. And I started to speak for about 10 minutes about the, the fantastic revival that's taking place in this country. And before I forget, I want to tell you, we are blessed here. And we should praise the Lord for America. Anybody who disagree with me, raise your hand. You disagree with me? Amen. <laughs> God, because we are blessed here, and I think we should praise the Lord for for this country because He has this is a blessed land, and I think we should be grateful to Him now, and I think we should give right now give the Lord a hand for America right now. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. And then I, so I spoke about America for about 10 minutes and the Holy Spirit kept twisting me inside of my head there. And he says, now I want you to switch the subject and I want to tell him about marriages. And I said, Lord, I said, they want to know about America. I said, I want you to speak about marriages. And I switched. And as I spoke about marriages, the Lord spoke to me. He says, there is great misery that's taking place in the Christian home today, not only in America, but in Europe. Satan is there trying to destroy the homes, as you well know. And Satan is there to disrupt it because that's the best way he can get at us. We are totally powerless unless we are united, men and wife, to work together as a ministry. And, uh, and the Lord say, I want you to tell them about your marriage and I want you to speak to them about marriages. And this is why I spoke about marriages and I brought the couple forward after that. And we had tears, we had cries, we had healing and we praise God because God has done miracle again. We have to be united as a couple. And this is what I wanted to mention also. When we came back, you know, when we came back from America, guess what happened to me? I spent an extra week and my boss said, well, goodbye, we don't need you anymore and let me go. Let my wife lost her job, I lost my job, and we both were out of work. 
But I tell you, God did another miracle again. Because Satan tried to destroy, destroy this marriage. But God says, I will bring even closer together. And he brought us closer. Even though we had no financial support and we were uh, practically poor in a sense, God made us rich inside because he said, I will bring you so close together. And, he, and I praise God for that because my wife never looked more beautiful to me. And, and, and I was praising her. And I said, God, and the Lord showed to me, I will show you where your wife is. And I will make her bloom like a bouquet of flowers. And my wife never looked more beautiful to me. And I said, you know, I never knew that. And the Lord showed me because you didn't understand the other woman, the real woman that I have created. You only saw the woman that was a role, she was playing a role, you know. She was playing the little, uh, the, the little helpless little thing. She was pretty and helpless. And God said, I didn't make her helpless. I didn't make her stupid. Your wife is very intelligent and very capable and I will transform her. And I look at her and I say, look what I got, Lord. I have a treasure. And I didn't even know I had this treasure. And I praise God again. And not only... And the other day, the other day, this uh, woman was telling me about woman liberation. And she said, we should go to Washington and get women liberated. This is something where I said, my wife is already liberated, my friend. My wife is liberated. And oh, well, if she's liberated, let her come to Washington. I said, she doesn't have to go to Washington. She's already liberated. And she has, and she will never find, you'll never find liberation in Washington. Gloria Steinem and Betty Freedom and all the, the lesbian uh, that marching in Washington will not liberate women because women have been liberated in the name of Jesus Christ and by the blood of Jesus. And the Lord showed me, he says, you're going to be speaking to women and you're going to show them and you're going to tell them that I have liberated them. And women, instead of trying to, to form and to get involved with a unisex, you know, I am a person. You're not a person, you're a woman or a man. God did not create persons. You don't go to a department store and say, I want, a, I want some clothes for a person about, a, uh, about size 16 or something. You're not a person. You're a man or a woman. You're either masculine or feminine. And I say, we have to emphasize that. And God has created beautiful women, and I think it's about time the women unite, the Christian women unite together in one body and saying, we're going to fight this woman liberation because we are the, we have the true liberation. We have, we, through Christ, you can find, and a woman can find her true inner self, the true essence, the inner woman. You know, if you read First Peter third chapter, he said, do not put gold braid, but put on the inner beauty, and you have a right and you have an obligation to find your inner nature, your real nature, not the one that they have told you you are, not the one that society makes you. So women look like, like penguins, you know, they're all made up and everything else, but the inner beauty, and find your essence, find your true self, because you are powerful. Woman, Christian woman, you are powerful. You're not helpless. You, are, you can be very feminine, and I think you have to emphasize and accept your totality of your own femininity. I think women have a lot to offer, and the closer we women understand the power that they have. Do you agree with me that women are powerful in the name of Jesus? Who agrees with that? You have beautiful power. And you are, and you have, and we men, we men, we have a right also to love our women even more. Because when we see a, a woman, you don't see a helpless little thing. It's a powerful because she has Christ in her. She has the beauty of Christ. There is no dummies in this world. There is no dummy in Christ. There is no stupidity in Christ. There is no helplessness. We are powerful people. Why don't we make that power? I say, we unite. I say, in the name of Jesus, I say, woman, Christian women should unite and face 
the reality of that Jezebel curse that we have in America today. We have a spirit of Jezebel. As you agree with that, we have a spirit of, of this, of dying to destroy men and, and, and separate men from women. When I say femininity, be feminine and you will see it is not a helpless because God doesn't create junk. God didn't make women junk. He made beautiful women and I am excited because at home, my wife to me is the ambassador. God gave me my wife as the ambassador of all the women in the world. And I can understand through her own suffering, through her needs, through her desire. I can understand the desire of all the other people. God didn't give me a woman just to play with, just to have fun with. God said, you see in that woman, you can see all my creation through her. And, and in my own house, I can see all the needs and all the things that she needs. I can see that in my own wife and therefore I can understand and have sympathy and compassion for all the women in the world. And that's why I can love God even more, because His creation is even more beautiful. And I'm more excited every day to see what He has done in the inner man. It is important for us to destroy and to get rid of the old man, this, this, this pri uh, full of pride, full of vanity, selfish men that we are. And we have a right and an obligation to find the inner man. We have tremendous power inside of us, the essence. God has created a true human being inside, but it is buried inside. If you read the Colossians 3.10, it says, put on the new man according to the image of the one who has created you. We have a right and we have an obligation toward Christ that dwells in, in, in all of us because he is the truth. And, and the truth is within you. You don't have to go looking all over the place. You have it inside. We have the truth. And we have a right to say, I want, Lord, help me to find who the inner man is. I would like to close our eyes a minute. Let's close our eyes. Let's pray for a second. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you, Lord, and we lift to you all the Christian couples, Lord. All the Christian cops, cops, uh, couples. And we thank you, Lord, for this blessing. And we know that the enemy is there trying to disrupt and destroy those merry marriages today, Lord. But it shall not be accomplished because the Lord Jesus said you are stronger. You are more powerful, Lord, than anything else. And Lord Jesus, we ask you to come in our heart now and reveal to us what our spouse is really like. Not the one that we know, but the real one that you have created. Help us to understand the Christ in, in our wives, that the, the Christ dwell in her too. Help us to understand the inner beauty that in that woman, not the physical beauty only, but the inner beauty, the inner power in, inside of her. Help us, we husband, to love our wife even more, as Jesus loved the, loved the, loved the church. Lord, we thank you, Lord. If, we, if our wife are to submit to us, Lord, we have to love them even more so we can be the real priest in the family. And Lord, help us, Lord, to understand the totality of the creation, the totality that you have made, the inner man, Lord, because it is only through the inner man that we'll have the victory, because the inner man is capable of loving in a greater measure than the, than the old man. The old man is only capable of loving conditionally, but the inner man is capable of loving unconditionally, without condition. Lord, we thank you because the inner man is invulnerable. The inner man is incorruptible. The inner man doesn't have any pride. The inner man doesn't have to compare himself to others. The inner man is the real essence, the real creation that God has made millions of years ago. And we thank you, Lord, for this prayer. And we ask you to unite the couples even more closer. That when they look at each other's eyes, they can see each other in a new, in a new fashion. They never saw each other before. Because those little women, they are not helpless, Lord, and we thank you for them. And we thank you for the woman, Lord, because the Christian woman, they are the answer 
to woman liberation because they are liberation by the blood of Jesus. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to reveal their true identity. Reveal to us what we really are, Lord, not what we think we are, but what you know we are, the real creation. And we say that in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have a speaker for today, and we don't want to delay. Our brother has come, and our brother has come to share with us what God has given him this day. He has ordained this day that he would come and share with us many wonderful and interesting things. And God, the only thing that I can just, before I bring him on, to share with you is that it would seem to me that someone said to me once that in regards to astronomy, which our brother is, of course, very familiar with, that the men who were responsible first in the Bible to indicate that something great had taken place were those who saw a star rise in the sky. And these were considered wise men. They would be, of course, called astronomers, perhaps, today, in today's parlance, in today's understanding. They understood that something great is going to take place. Well, you know we're told also to look to the east. And something great is about to happen also. The star, which is Jesus himself, shall rise and will come in the clouds. And we will see him. And he will call us. And you know, every one of us, because we're born again and because we're saved, we're astronomers. We'll be able to see that star rise. And we'll be able to understand, like the wise men, what that's all about. Those who are not saved, those who are alienated from God, will not understand. They will not even see. They will not even know what's happening until it's too late. And so without any more ado, we're going to bring our brother Fred Trinkline on and ask him to deliver what God has put upon his heart. And we ask God to bless him as he shares with us the truths of God's secrets, perhaps some things we didn't understand in this universe and in the Bible. Praise the Lord. Brother Fred. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Wow, this is not like my usual Saturday mornings. You know, this last week, as though the Lord were trying to prepare the message himself, and he always does. We've read in the newspapers that the Nobel Prize was awarded once more, or I should say prizes. And never before have I seen Nobel Prizes awarded more appropriately to the theme we're about to discuss this morning, which is science, faith, and the power of God. The science prizes, which once again were monopolized by the United States, for which we should praise the Lord, the science prizes were given to people who dealt with the infinitely small and unknowable. They were talking about quarks and gluons and things we never heard of and never will see. And people with new theories about what the universe is composed of received cash prizes and world acclaim. And then the prize for peace, 
was given to Sister Teresa in India, who in a very practical manner showed that the study of the universe is not sufficient if it is not accompanied by the love of Christ. And she received the prize for sharing her life and her faith with the downtrodden and the poor. And the story that touched me about Sister Teresa was when they came to her and asked her why she received the prize and how she felt about it, she said, I am unworthy. I am unworthy. And one of her co-workers standing by said, let me tell you about Sister Teresa. A man was brought into this hospital recently and he was half consumed with cancer. And the co-workers around her would not touch him. They had to get out of the room. They couldn't stand the stench of this disease. And Sister Teresa touched him and said, My brother, the stench that we smell must not be nearly as bad as the pain that you feel. That takes a grace from the Lord for a woman, for any person, to work and work out her faith in this manner. I want to talk to you this morning first about science. You know, never before in the short time, even though it is over 30 years, in the short time that I've been privileged to study the universe, have I seen such a direct road to the hand of the Creator as in what scientists are learning and revealing to the world today. Even the unbelieving scientists today is forced to admit that there is a creator. I don't know if you saw Newsday a week ago when the front page of part two had pictures, very strange pictures on it, of six kinds of quarks. I called my friend Earl Lane who wrote this article and said I want to compliment you on a very accurate and beautiful story and it goes on for pages about how scientists are looking for the building blocks, the ultimate building blocks of the universe. First there was a silence and he said, you know, Fred, it's very unusual for me to get a phone call when I write something about physics because nobody understands it. Strange things on the front page. Six kinds of quarks. What in the world is a quark? Well, if you're of German extraction, you know that a quark in German means cottage cheese. It looks like the world is made of cottage cheese. Well, it might as well be because we have the vaguest idea what a quark is or what holds a quark together. <laughs> well, it isn't so funny when you realize a man just got $195,000 tax-free for saying that quarks are held together by gluons. Now, why didn't you or I think of that? <laughs> And out here at Brookhaven, they're building the world's most powerful machine, $375 million without overruns, <laughs> built by 1985. It's called Isabel. And I asked one of the scientists there, what does that mean, Isabel? It means intersecting storage accelerator. I said, that's just ISA, what's Bell? He said, it's so beautiful. Ten times more powerful than the world's most powerful atom smasher right here on Long Island. I hope they keep it 
in the Brookhaven laboratory to find gluons. Dr. Robert Jastrow, who is not a believer, I had occasion to meet him recently and talk to him about his faith. And he wrote a little book called God and the Astronomers. I was talking to Jim about this a moment ago, our physicist. God and the Astronomers. What is an unbeliever writing about God and the Astronomers? Well, I'll tell you something. In his article on astronomy, Dr. Jastrow says, the main ideas in science are as simple as the ideas in the Bible. Something beyond the powers of human comprehension created the universe. In the Bible, that force is called God. Science minimizes the Bible, but it turns out that man really was created from dust. On the last page of his book, Dr. Jastrow says something that is infinitely meaningful. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. One of the activities that Mrs. Trinkline and I have been privileged to participate in over the last 10 years is to follow eclipses of the sun around the world. It has taken us to Africa, to Australia, to Mexico, to Canada. The next one is back in Africa. An eclipse of the sun is one of the most awesome things you can ever see. In bright daylight at noontime, the sky goes dark and the stars come out but you have to go to the very narrow band of land where God has arranged this spectacle. It's only a hundred miles wide or so. Two astronomers from Boston University in a physics journal, not in a religion magazine, just published a paper entitled On Total Solar Eclipses, Extraterrestrial Life, and the Existence of God. Now, what these two astronomers wrote in this article is that only on the surface of the Earth can you see a solar eclipse, not on Mars, not on Pluto, not on Jupiter, nowhere else. Only on the Earth is the sun and the moon at the right distance and have the right size so that that narrow shadow hits the Earth. And only on the Earth do we now know anywhere in the solar system is there any kind of life. Dr. Jastrow told me in an interview that it's now beginning to look like there is no life anywhere else. And that's scary, he said, because we better take good care of it. These two astronomers end their paper by calculating the chances that these two things should be so on the Earth, that there should be life here, and that we can see this beautiful spectacle of an eclipse and the last sentence of their scientific paper is, therefore, there is a God. 
I've had occasion also in the last few years on assignment as a news reporter, as a freelance magazine writer, to be assigned to conventions around the country of Nobel Prize winners and other top scientists. And one of the most unusual experiences I've ever had was to sit at a meeting of the most Nobel Science Prize winners of the last 50 years in Minnesota in which they discussed the future. What is science telling us will happen in the future? And one of the speakers there was Sir John Eccles. Sir John Eccles, who lives in Switzerland, received his Nobel Prize for finding something new about the way in which nerve endings transmit electric impulses, the synapse across the nerve ending. He told this assembled group of 4,000 people in Minnesota that we have a problem, that the scientists in studying the brain cannot find any explanation for memory. It cannot explain why, when we got up this morning, we knew that we were the same people we were when we went to bed last night. This cannot be explained with the brain. Therefore, Sir John Eccles, in his address, called this the mind, the soul. And since we cannot find this soul in the human brain, he said, therefore, science is now ready to say that we have absolute proof that the human being has a soul. I'm telling you, it takes a real effort today for a scientist or anyone else to be an atheist. Atheism is going out of scientific fashion. This was not true 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you hesitated in a scientific classroom to talk about God. Today, if you don't bring in God, you're not telling the whole story. Now, in order to find out whether what I am saying is really true or whether it's just a quirk or a coincidence, I was given the opportunity a number of years ago to start another activity that only the Lord could predict the outcome of. I was given the chance to go to various countries in the world and interview the world's top scientists to find out just exactly what they believe about God. A man came to me with ample resources and said, I want you to go wherever you have to go and I'll pay the expenses. We ended up in 13 countries. And before we were finished, we had interviewed, and this is also very unusual, 50% of the scientists to whom I had written and asked whether I could talk to them about God. Now, in most questionnaires, if you send something out, you get 5 10% response. I went to the library and looked up the world's greatest scientists, found their address send him a letter, and all I said was, I want to come and talk to you about God. One man wrote back, or told me on the phone, rather, after we got to Germany, he was Einstein's, and it's Einstein I learned from his friend, not Einstein, 
He was Einstein's close personal friend, and he said, I have not given an interview to a newspaper man for 20 years. I'm over 80 years old. I'm in poor health. But when you asked me what I thought about God, I said, come, because no one had ever asked me that question. And shortly after that, the man died, Dr. Max Born. And in a, in a drawer of his desk, he said, it is a shame that I have a hundred letters here from Einstein that he and I exchanged over the last 20 years that have never been published about what we feel about the universe, about science, and about religion, and yes, about bratwurst and beer too. These have now been published. They're called the Born-Einstein Letters. Well, the outcome was, and I don't want to read the whole thing. It's in a little booklet that you'll find on the table called The God of Science. What do the Nobel Prize winners and other top scientists in the universities of the world think about God? The outcome was, very briefly, that the scientists are eager to talk about their faith. Nobody ever asks them. They all are expected to be cold, objective, unfeeling, inhuman scientists. And this is exactly what's been wrong with science the last 20 years. We teach it in the schools as though scientists were not people. As soon as you talk about the person, then they say, that's not science. Talk about his laws and his principles and his discoveries. But where do you learn in a public school or any other school, science classroom, what kind of a person Edison was? What did he think about God? What did Einstein think about God? How important was it to him? What did Margaret Mead think about God? And I had the great privilege of talking to her on shipboard in 1977, very shortly before she died, when we were there together looking at an eclipse of the sun. And I said, Dr. Mead, I'd like to ask you what you think about God. Now, Margaret Mead was probably the most famous woman scientist who ever lived. Maybe Madame Curie, yes. And she told me, I am a post-agnostic. I said, what is a post-agnostic? She said, a post-agnostic is a person who used to be an unbeliever, and now I'm a Christian. She said, my grandfather was an unbeliever, or they don't call it that. In science, they're called agnostics. Agnostics are people say, who say, we don't have any way of knowing about God. She said, I've been all over the world studying the civilizations of the world, and I find that in each one of them, there is a need for God. And so I have become a Christian. And I found this over and over and over again. Let me first tell you a little about what Einstein said. Unfortunately, I was not able to talk to him during his lifetime. I talked to his housekeeper. I said, is there anything on Dr. Einstein's desk that we can draw any conclusions from? And she said, I'm sorry, the desk has been cleared off for another person to come in and take over his office. But in going through Einstein's writings, there are certain things 
that I think are important for anyone who learns science to know, because he's revered as the greatest scientific mind of modern times. And Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. The very fact that we can study it and that it makes sense is absolutely nonsense without God, is what he's saying. Above the door of the place where Einstein taught in Princeton University, the Institute for Advanced Study, there is a German saying that says, Raffiniert ist der Herrgott, aber boshaft ist der nicht. In English that means God is very refined and meticulous, but he's not malicious. In other words, to study the universe will produce results. It's not haphazard. And his most famous saying that he wrote over and over to Max Born was, God does not play dice. Now, Max Born received his Nobel Prize for the quantum theory. Now, the quantum theory says that the universe is haphazard. Things do not happen because of scientific laws. That's out today in science. You don't teach about laws anymore. You teach about probabilities. If I drop something here, it will probably fall. But you don't know if it'll fall till you drop it. There is no law that says it must fall. The law does not explain why it falls. It simply says it falls. Science can never tell us why anything happens. It only tells us how it happens. When my classes ask me, why does this happen? I say, God only knows. Only God can tell us why. Science can tell us how. And Max Born said, when you drop something a million times, and when it has been dropped a million times, it has always been seen to fall. But if a person walked through the door and said, I just dropped something and it fell up, you could not disprove it. It has been recorded as a fact by this person. But now you're faced with the question of whether it is more probable that that thing fell up or more probable that he's crazy. And since there are many more crazy people than up-falling things, <laughs> in my college class yesterday, we studied parallax. We called the experiment parallax without pain. You got to be cutesy today to get kids to study. Parallax without pain. And I put an object on the other side of the room and told them how parallax is used to measure the distance to that object. And this one girl asked me, how certain is this measurement that I just made? And I said, I'll tell you what you do. You take a ruler and you get on the floor and you measure it and see how certain it is. And she was crawling on the floor and she was about halfway there and she said, how certain is this? And I said, you've got the idea. Nothing in science is certain. Nothing. I said, now if you think that isn't certain, now measure to the moon. Oh, how do you do that? I said, you use parallax. 
And the problem now is you can't take a ruler. You have to believe in science in how certain something is. Or maybe we shouldn't even use the word believe. Don't believe anything in science because it'll all change. It'll all be improved. And how strange it is when we read about science, we get the impression that when science establishes it, it's absolutely true. If science says this toothpaste is best, we rush out and buy it. And yet nothing in science is absolutely true. And any scientist who stops doubting even his own theories no longer has a value as a scientist. He has lost the most important ingredient of science, and that is skepticism. Everything you learn in the universe, you take with a grain of salt. We had a great thrill this last summer of going to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology because for 12 days there was a, a conference held there at the request of science, at the request of scientists from around the world called Science, Faith, and the Future. That's where I got the title for this day's talk, but I changed the last part. Science, Faith, and the Future. These 500 scientists in five languages. We had earphones on, we could dial French, Spanish, German, English, and Russian, and hear them speak about the need for Jesus Christ in science. Now, this never happened before. Never. To hear a nuclear engineer say that we need the gospel of Christ was something you had to clear your ears out and see if you're listening right. Not that he didn't believe in Christ before, but that he was able to talk about it to other scientists. Russians were there. From all over the world they were there talking about how the Christian religion alone can bring hope to the world. And the people who reported this in the newspapers didn't miss the point either. In the Milwaukee Journal, and this is from a clipping that a student sent me and I can't find right now. The Milwaukee Journal reported that the war between, I've read it so often I can give it by heart, the war between science and the church is over. The war that started with Galileo and Darwin is over. Now we're fighting a common battle. Now we had better beat our swords into plowshares and find out how together, as scientists and theologians and in the same person, our science and our religion can help to bring the message to people. What else did these scientists say when I asked them about God? And it has to do exactly with what I just said about certainty. Over and over. The scientists told me that you cannot prove or disprove scientifically that there is a God. Now that is a very important and comforting statement. Because when you remember that you prove something in science by doing it over and over and then you keep questioning it, then you should thank God that you cannot prove that he exists in a scientific manner, because in science you never arrive at absolute truth. And if a scientist would tell me, I can prove that there is a God, 
I would be very uncomfortable because I know that everything in science changes. And next week somebody would show what's wrong with that proof. You don't believe in God because you can prove it. You believe in God because he gave you the gift of faith. And that's absolute. That doesn't depend on whether an object falls down or whether somebody's crazy. The second thing they told me is that scientists have known for a long time that science has limits, but nobody listens to that. They think that when a person wins the Nobel Prize, he knows everything. George Beadle, the president of the University of Chicago, was on my list, and he said, yes, I will talk to you about God. I got to the motel in Chicago, and he called from his office and said, I don't want to talk about it in my office. I want to come to your motel. Why? Because they've been having student uprisings and all kinds of things. He doesn't want that. And so at night, on a bed in a hotel, in a motel, Dr. George Beadle, who got his Nobel Prize for studying corn, he knows more about corn than anybody in the world. Did you know that corn is the only crop that will disappear from the face of the earth if it's not cultivated? Nobody knows where it came from. The Indians in Mexico, where he went to study it, said it came straight from God. It came from Quetzalcoatl, the name for God down there. And when Cortez came to invade Mexico, the Aztecs believed that this was Quetzalcoatl coming to bring them another gift. And so they didn't resist him. And 350 men conquered Mexico. George Beadle told me he wishes he had never received the Nobel Prize. Why not? Because now I'm bothered with people who think I know everything. And all I know is corn. They made him president of the university because he's corny. Instant fame if you get the Nobel Prize. I told my students, I wish one of you would get the Nobel Prize because then they'll bother you, but then they'll say, who was his teacher? <laughs> These people all said science has limits. Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the great astronomer at Northwestern University, great university because I went there. Now, Dr. Hynek is known today as Mr. UFO. If you want to know about UFOs, in my opinion, there's only one good book on the whole market called The UFO Experience by J. Allen Hynek, H-Y-N-E-K. Hynek spent 20 years studying UFOs. And when he got all done, the Air Force who hired him wouldn't print his results. Why not? Asked the Air Force. But Hynek got so angry that he printed his own book and said what he really found out and what he really believed. J. Allen Hynek told me that a scientist has one way of finding out things that are true and they're never absolute. But when it comes to religion, he said, a scientist is absolutely helpless 
he has to do the same thing you and I do. He has to read the Bible. Heineck said, a scientist trying to find out about Jesus Christ in a science lab is as silly as a guy showing up on a golf course with a tennis racket. Heineck said, when I build my life, I use bricks of all kinds to build the house of my life. If I find a real brick from science, I put that in the wall. But then when I come to a place where I cannot find the brick, then I take the brick of the Spirit and I put an invisible one in there and it helps to build my house.